So welcome to this episode of the Simulated Universe. I'm Riz Verick, and we'll, as usual, we'll be exploring the boundaries between science, science fiction, consciousness, and lots of unexplained phenomena. My guest today is Sky Nelson Isaacs. Sky is a physicist. He uh, studied his uh, got his undergraduate degree at UC Berkeley and his graduate degree in physics from um, San Francisco State University, where he did his thesis on string theory. And he's the author of a great book called Living in Flow, The Science of Synchronicity and How Your Choices Shape Your World. And we'll be talking with Sky about one of my favorite topics, synchronicity, uh, as well as uh, since it's a simulated universe, we'll get into all kinds of holographic universe and then simulation stuff down the road as well. So welcome, Sky. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Riz. It's great to be here. There's so much alignment between the work that we're doing. Yeah, definitely. I, I sensed that when I read your book and, and when we met in person. Uh, so looking forward to getting jumping in. So maybe we can start with you just talking a little bit about synchronicity. I mean, I think most of our listeners will have heard of synchronicity as a meaningful coincidence, uh, but perhaps you know you can give us a kind of historical context and uh, maybe even a better definition for it. Yeah. So one way to think about synchronicity as as a phenomenon in the world is that the world we live in is not indifferent to us and it's not friendly to us, but it's responsive. So the 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 synchronicities that show up in our life, the meaningful coincidences, the times when we run into somebody we've been thinking about that ends up being a really useful uh, conversation that we have or something like that. Th those things are the, the, the world that we live in is designed to respond, I think, to us and our choices. And so the work I do really focuses on the choices that we make and how our physical world responds to those choices by bringing us certain types of opportunities. So I can, I can tell a story to illustrate this if, if that's helpful. Yeah, go right ahead. Uh, in graduate school, I was commuting uh, all the way to the city. It was a couple hours to get there, and um, I would take the bus often. But on this particular day, it was finals – or no, it wasn't finals. It was uh, leading up to finals, and it was an important set of classes that we were taking. And I drove to, to class, and I was running a little bit late. So um, – uh, well, let me back up a minute. So we had a camping trip that would happen every year, and it was the first time I had been part of this uh, this uh, camping trip because it was my first year, and I wanted to uh, join the camping trip, but I was told that it, it was, you know, I, I wasn't sure where it was going to be, and so I sort of assumed it would be kind of near class because class was two and a half hours away from me, and I figured it would be near there, and it would just be too hard for me to get away for the night away from my family. And I didn't even ask where the camping trip was going to be. And meanwhile, a couple of weeks went by, and finally it's a couple of days before the trip, and somebody asked, are you coming on the trip? And I said, well, no, I can't. It's like too far for me to come and get away from the, for the weekend. I said, where is it? And they said, it's at this such and such campground at the observatory. And I realized that place was 10 minutes from my house. <laughs> so the whole school was getting in cars and traveling up through traffic to get to where I live and go to this campground where there was a, an observatory where they could look at the stars. And so suddenly I realized, yes, of course, this all fell into place. The, the, the location of the, um, of the camping trip was just aligned perfectly where I could actually go. And, and I assumed it wasn't. And so there's a certain amount of openness that comes from being uh, able to start to recognize when these opportunities show up in our life and how to uh, take advantage of them. 
Well, now uh, that's a really interesting story. Uh, and in this case, you had, you know, you, your internal assumption was kind of one way, but the universe arranged it a different way, right? <laughs> different yeah. than what you were thinking. Yeah. Now, and, and, now, and, and there's this, there's an actual uh, an icing on that cake too, where I, I was going to say no still to the trip because the next day my daughter had a birthday party, and I wanted to be there for my daughter's birthday party. So, but once again, I just at this point I realized I needed to be a little bit more open, open-minded. And there's a process I, I call the Lorax process to listen to the circumstance, open our mind, reflect on it, release it, release our attachments to how we thought things were going to go, and then from there choose an action. And and the X is to not ever stop the process. Keep keep listening. Keep listening. And so I, I decided to listen, and, and in this situation where my daughter had a birthday party the next day, I asked, where is the birthday party going to be? <laughs> and it turns out my daughter went to school just a few minutes from that campground, and the the, the birthday party was going to be at the campground. So, <laughs> so in the morning, we woke up in the morning and just walked five minutes down the trail to the, to the birthday party. Hmm. Now, would you say that perhaps there was something that wanted you to go on this camping trip? I mean, how would you – What's a good framework for thinking about that? I mean, it's one thing to be open to coincidences. It's another to say that, hey, you know, the universe or something is guiding you towards a certain action. Right. I think of it as responsiveness. It's not that the universe has an agenda for us. It's that we come at life with an agenda, essentially, and we're often blind to that agenda. Like we we have an intention for how, what, how we want to live and what we want to do with ourselves, but we have all sorts of layers of belief and conditioning that stop us from always seeing you know in this case i really did want to go camping i wanted to bond with my student my fellow students and but i had layers of conditioning about how hard that would be to get away from my family for the weekend and how traffic is very difficult to make that drive and and so i think that we do have an internal agenda for how we want what kinds of experiences we want to experience and I call it anticipating experience. So we're constantly anticipating the experiences we want to have. Sometimes that's a positive thing. Sometimes we're actually anticipating avoiding certain experiences. And right. those could that be a negative thing? Could we could we be anticipating yeah. some some negative thing and then it comes to pass? Yeah. Well, I think that happens a lot where we we might have uh, we might be wanting to get a new job, but we anticipate the experience of not getting the job. And so our behaviors and our choices actually end up pulling, uh, leading us into synchronicities, which make the job less likely or, or undermine us. So I think um, you know, self-defeatism is really a part of this as well. It, it's a neutral process in which the cosmos is responding to us by bringing us situations that reflect the experiences that we're anticipating. So now let's take the kind of more skeptical scientific point of view. I mean, who's to say that that wasn't just a coincidence? Right? What would be your, your your general response to that? And you know, I know Jung originally defined a synchronicity as an a-causal connecting principle, right? Because scientists would say there's no real connection between what goes on inside our heads and what happens in the outside world. Um, so maybe you can comment on on those two things. Yeah. So. Jung's idea of a causality is a good one. What I suggest is that it's a causality of meaning. And we have to insert the idea of meaningfulness in an objective way, in a scientific way. That's not just subjective meaning like I, I feel this way or I, um, I interpret something personally a certain way. That's subjective meaning. But I try and talk about objective meaning. What is the set of outcomes that our, our choices leads to? 
And when we set a, when we take an action, we are defining a set of branches. The model here is a branching tree of possibilities. When we take an action, we're defining the set of branches that align with that action. So let's use the example of setting an intention to, uh, well, in this case, well, let's, let's use an example of health. Let's say I have an intention to be healthier in, the, in a, a year from now. And what I might do is set an intention to do that, and I might make a choice to do some meal planning and go to the store and get some, some groceries and come home and start cooking healthier food. And what I would then find in a, in a non-synchronistic universe is that that just leads to me feeling better that day maybe. And, and, and an, if I continue to do that on an ongoing basis, I would gradually re replace the, the negative chemicals in my body with more vitamins and minerals. And, and so on an, at an objective level, I'd become healthier. But what I also suggest is that there's an acausal mechanism which identifies the future branches of the tree that have the experience I want to have of being healthy. So when I make a choice, I'm not just making a choice in the moment. I'm also identifying the branches of the tree that have the experience I'm seeking. And those branches, you, you could think of them metaphorically like apple trees, where they, those branches get apples. And they weigh, those branches get weighed down. And so it becomes more likely in this a-causal way that a particular situation would show up in my life which leads me to the apple. So a synchronicity in this view is an experience that seems meaningful because it leads to an experience we're seeking to have. Hmm. And so, so we, in my path, I might get an opportunity to like join the gym for six months for free that I didn't expect before, but it's, it's related to the goal I have of being healthier and eating well. Right. So in this case, you're talking about, you know, a conscious intention perhaps, right? Um, how might that differ from a situation where you think about a friend and then they end up calling you like, which would be maybe the simplest kind of example of a, of a synchronicity. Well, let me, let me give a different example of that, which is more complicated. I was traveling in Europe in, when I was about 20, and I had intended – I had a friend who was in Israel at the time, and she was there for the semester, the same semester I was traveling. And we had this really vague plan to meet while we were traveling, and, and Greece was kind of like this, this nexus where we thought we could – you know, in between our different paths of travel – and so we had this really vague plan to meet on a beach in Greece, but we didn't have each other's phone number or, or emails and stuff. So we were just uh, – I was planning to call her when I got close to, to Greece. But as I was on my way through Italy, on my way down to Greece, I got sick, and I realized I had to head home. So I went up to Paris and was, was going to get on a plane the next day to go back to California. Meanwhile, she had been waiting for me to call, waiting for me to call, getting frustrated, and her friends invited her to go to Paris for the weekend to go to Fashion Week and just enjoy the, enjoy themselves. And she almost said no because she didn't want to miss my call. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily she said yes and went to Paris. And we each – so I had about 24 hours while I was in Paris to do whatever I wanted. And I went to the Louvre Museum, which is obviously one of the most popular museums in Paris. And I'm walking through the Louvre, and I stopped dead in my tracks because I see this person that looks just like her. I can't figure it out. Like I'm dumbfounded because she's in Israel. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, it turns out it's her, and, and her friend looks at her and says, don't look now, but there's this guy staring at you. The strange guy, right? <laughs> strange guy. <laughs> so, so we ended up bumping into each other in Paris by accident when we had intended to meet in Greece. And so there is an intention there 
but it wasn't a conscious intention that I'm going to try and manifest, you know, meeting in Paris mm. because it, it was very much uh, about at least the way I look at it. And I have calculated the likelihood of this and trying to show that it's it's unreasonable to, to just chalk this up to random chance, that there was an intention to meet in, in one location, a, a plan it put in place to do that, and also a, a really deep connection that she and I had. Uh, to finish the story, we ended up getting married about 10 years later, and, and she's my wife. So <laughs> this, was a, this was a deep connection that we had, and the meeting in Paris was a big part of that. Right. I think, you know, we've all had those kinds of experiences. Now, how would you analyze that given your model? And I really like your model of this tree, branching tree, because it seems mm. like whenever we make choices, we're cutting off branches. And, you know, as a computer science guy, yeah. <laughs> tree-like structures are kind of <laughs> fundamental in, in how I think about the universe. Yeah. But, you know, how would you analyze that using, you know, using this idea of this tree-like structure? I mean, would you have one branch where you're meeting in Israel and then a bunch of others of which maybe were unlikely initially and then they became more yeah. likely when you got sick or how would yeah. you think about that? <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I can go a little deeper and flesh that out a little bit. Let's say there's there's you know a branch of the tree where we both end up in Paris. And on that branch, we're both in Paris. We haven't necessarily met, but in Paris, if we're both there, there's a lot of branches where we could meet at a cafe or at the Louvre or at a club. So the, the Paris branch has a lot of apples on it. Hmm. Then there's also a branch Potential of Potential apples, I guess, right? Or I guess the apple would be a meeting, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. The apple is the experience we want to have, which is meeting. Okay. The, the, and, and it's really not the physical act of meeting. It's the emotional experience that we have inside of being connected and the experience of love or the experience of excitement. You know, that's what we're actually trying to achieve. And then there's another branch of the tree where she stays in Israel. And it's very unlikely that I go to Israel on this trip. That just wasn't part of my agenda. So there might be like one apple on that branch, but most of the rest of the branches don't have apples because we probably are not going to meet if she stays in Israel. So there's these two major trunks of the tree, one in which she goes to Paris and one in which she goes to Israel. And the question then becomes, is it possible that the weight on all the branches on the, on the Paris branch you know, because there's all these apples there, can that weigh down the probability of that branch so that anything that leads to her going to Paris becomes more likely? And this is where the coincidence happens. Her friends inviting her on that particular weekend to go to that particular place is, is the synchronicity. And that is what allows us to end up be, both being in Paris and be more likely to meet. Right. Now, if you were to zoom out on this branches of the tree right and 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 i've talked a little bit about this as well in my book treasure hunt where we where we have a large grid that might be our life our life and possibilities in our lives you know uh, do you think that you're meeting her in israel or paris was an essential part of where you are now um, given the fact that you guys got married do you you know what might have happened if she had turned down <laughs> Going right. to Paris, for example, you know, would that have made this other possibility less likely or might it have happened anyway? I mean, what are your general thoughts on, on that? I guess what I'm getting at is kind of this difference between uh, free will and determinism and are there paths that may be laid out for us already, whether we're aware of them or not. And, and the branches are kind of the weights are kind of helping us get to certain points. Yes, I think that the, the branching tree is so big <laughs> i mean it's so huge that, that this is really for me it's awe-inspiring that when i start 
paying attention to synchronicity, I catch more of them. And I still miss a lot of them. I miss what I look back and say, oh, that was an opportunity to to act and to go a new direction or to imp improve my standing in my current direction. And I missed it. And so there's a, a level of, and this is where it comes into flow. And that's why my, my book is about flow. When we get attached to getting everything just right and catching that particular synchronicity that we just, you know, we, sometimes it's a very narrow window of, you know, catching someone before a, a train door closes or something like that, you know, and we miss it. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Be well, I, I, don't, I don't like that word okay. Um, but that's, that's, that happens constantly, right? The more we pay attention to synchronicity in our lives, the more we miss obvious synchronicities that, that were not even obvious before. And so we just we keep moving along this tree, and it keeps unfolding in front of us with new ways for us to connect. And, and, and a part of this is being able to go get into flow and let go of the opportunities that we miss and open up to the opportunities that are now coming. Hmm. Now, does that imply that perhaps – uh, you know, because there's there's a lot of self-help literature about the pos uh, power of positive thinking, visualize, you know, your goal. But, you know, my contention is sometimes when people do that, they get a little too attached to a specific goal and that actually hurts them rather than helps them achieve things they want in life. Uh, do you think that sometimes we pay too much attention to a particular outcome rather than being open to how things might evolve? Yeah, I do. And and this is really the key element in the nature of choice and, and how choice is different in this kind of worldview. Because when we when we make a choice through the normal process of intending and planning and acting, you know, that's our, our normal way of doing things in the world, we also are setting a target. We're placing apples on the tree. And then the path between us and that target gets filled in. So we are not responsible for every part of that path, you know, for, for managing how to get from point A to point Z through our own willpower alone. Our job is to keep choosing and keep showing up and making appropriate choices to lead us on the path that we that we uh, that aligns with our our goals, you know, and, and trying to stay clear on what our inner goals are, and then and then being able to recognize when opportunities come along to fill in that path for us in ways that we don't expect. So in the example of trying to get healthier by eating healthier, it might be that you end up, you know, you're at the grocery store, you're trying to figure out a diet thing and find a, a product that you can have that doesn't, you know, have the dairy or whatever it is that you're trying to avoid. And then you bump into a friend there and they mention to you that they have a free gym membership for six months and you realize that that's been on your mind, but you've, you've been avoiding it because you can't afford it. And suddenly you have this opportunity to go to the gym now. And you find that that actually is the thing that meets your goal, that gets you to your goal of feeling healthier down the road. Because the diet was, you know, how you got started, but it actually ends up being the physical exercise that gets you across the finish line. And you didn't see that in advance. It's, it's allowing yourself to recognize what's the real goal here. The real goal is to feel healthy, not necessarily the, the set of plans that I had to get there. Right. So, so living in flow is, is maybe – uh, less about planning how you're going to get there. Um, right. Yeah. But 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 definitely having a plan. It's not going with the flow. It's it's a in Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the author of the book Flow, uh, the optimal a psychology of optimal experience. He puts it this way that we are typically on one end of the spectrum from um, surrendering control to trying to take extra control. 
like, and maybe I should go somewhere in the middle of like being halfway in control. But what he <laughs> says is it's not about the spectrum of control at all. It's about jumping above that spectrum, like jumping out of the paradigm of trying to manage control. And, and from there, it's like not worrying about whether you're in control or not and being able to show up authentically in the moment and figure out how to navigate a situation using choice, using your proactive choice capabilities, while at the same time opening up to possibilities that you can't expect in advance. Right. Now, uh, you're, you're a physicist, and uh, there's another physicist who's, whose work I like named Fred Allen Wolf, mm-hmm. um, who I think is, was there in Berkeley for a little while anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and he talks about… Uh, physics group. Yeah, yeah right. People in physics that were studying this uh, kind of esoteric aspects of uh, the Bell's theorem and stuff in the 60s. That's right. And there was uh, an MIT author, I forget his name, who wrote a book called How the Hippies Saved Physics, right? About uh, yeah. kind of yeah. the uh, influence of that group, right? Uh, but, I, you know, one book. of the, yeah, great book. One of the things that uh, uh, Fred Wolf says um, is that, you know, we have these possible futures that are sending back an offer wave of um, sort of information coming back. And we're, uh, with our choices and our intentions, we're sending information forward. Uh, and somehow those two meet and we end up choosing one possibility over another. Um, well, let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the physics here. Uh, I mean, how, how did you get involved with this? What do you think of his theory that these possible futures are sending information back in some capacity to us? Well, that particular theory is based, I believe, on Kramer's transactional interpretation of quantum mechanics, which says that, you know, in quantum mechanics, there's this thing. If you think about the, norm, the normal way of thinking about life is that there things exist, right? You're in a room right now, and the things in the room with you exist. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and then the opposite of that would be that it doesn't exist, like the stool that's in front of me exists, but it's possible that it could not exist, and then it would not exist. But there's actually this intermediate layer that, that quantum mechanics says is very much a real thing, which is the possibility of existence. And this is what we call the wave function. The wave function is this intermediate layer between sort of the void and physical reality that we're used to that says, okay, there's a possibility for this thing happening. And it had, but it hasn't become real yet, so it's just a wave function. And then under certain conditions, the wave function collapses into a, a state of reality and becomes a real experience. And it does that by essentially being squared, which means it multiplied by itself, you know, like the typical mathematical procedure of squaring something. And so what the what the transactional interpretation says is that the wave function represents sort of forward moving in time information information moving forward in time. But when you square it, you multiply it by its its conjugate and you get this backwards moving in time information. And so the one interpretation of that is that somehow the, the, the future is sending back a signal to us and we're sending a signal forward to the future and that when they meet, it kind of has some, some interaction. Now, I think that that is, uh, it's an interpretation. It's not, um, it's not a different theory from quantum mechanics. It's one of the ways to look at the information of quantum mechanics. I don't, um, so my work is pretty different from that. Mm-hmm. So I can dive into that. Yeah, let's do that. The work I'm trying to, to complete right now. And, and actually, before you before you do that, uh, you know, how did you, as somebody who studied quantum physics, you know, end up writing a book on synchronicity? <laughs> Maybe we can talk about that first, and then yeah, let's sure. jump into the your research, and we'll talk about meaningful history selection sure. and all that great stuff. Yeah. So I 
I would say that early on in my life, I was interested in, I was, I was raised even in a family that studied spiritual um, traditions, and not just one spiritual tradition, but my one side of my family was following the teachings of Swami Satchidananda, who was a, a teacher from the East, uh, who studied yoga and taught yoga and yogic philosophy. So I learned about that. I learned about the Bhagavad Gita. I was very interested in the Tao Te Ching growing up in high school. And uh, also I have Jew- Jewish roots in my family. And I uh, and then my dad's side of the family was very scientific and, and had had left behind those kind of spiritual questions for a more practical scientific approach to the world. So I had all of these things, but I really felt that there was some mystery at the core of everyday existence that I that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Like, why is it that things happen the way they happen? There does seem to be some order to it. And then in college, I ended up sort of accidentally falling into physics and uh, did I, I loved it. And it was answering some of the same questions of what is the fundamental nature of reality, space and time. And we still don't understand, even after going through all these years of schooling, what space and time really is. We don't have a theory that's really well proven of what, what that is. Yeah, and some people say it doesn't really exist. It has either space right. or time. Yeah. Well, in, in the word existence itself has something to do with space and time. Existence means it is in space and time, right? So <laughs> space and time are the words we use to define things, but when we try and define them, we get stuck. Right. So I would say in my 20s, I started bringing these, these threads together where I saw that synchronicity – these experiences like where I I think I'm not going to be able to go to the camping trip and then it turns out that the camping trip ends up being exactly where I am, making it easy for me to do that, that this is an experience that satisfies a meaningful aspect to me, right? It gives me an experience I want to have. It makes me feel happy. It makes me feel like I'm part of the bigger world and I'm connected to other people and I'm connected to the universe in some sense. Like it brings a sense of wonder. Wonder is like the greatest, I think, spiritual experience we can have. It just fills us with a sense of um, humility and connection at the same time. And and yet it's a physical thing, right? Because the, the logistics of that bus coming up to the campground near me <laughs> is a physical thing described by physics. So synchronicity is a place where physics meets meaning or what you might call it consciousness or spirituality. And so those those together made it really interesting to me to say, well, if I could just understand synchronicity, I might be able to contribute to the dialogue between spirituality and science in a, in a meaningful way. Yeah, well, that's great because, uh, you know, I find that. Uh, too often these two worlds are, are, are not talking, and yet the questions that they're asking are really the same questions, which is what is the nature of reality yeah. <laughs> and, and, and how do things work? And it seems like synchronicity is one of the few areas that's like a key that can help unlock you know, this dialogue back and forth. Yeah, that's, that's how I see it, and it's, it's definitely proven to be that way for me, which has led me very unintentionally to this – idea or this model of uh, a holographic multiverse. Yeah, so let's talk about that and, and talk about your research a little bit. Um, I know in your book you talk about uh, meaningful history selection, and then I know you've also talked about this holographic multiverse. So let, let's jump into that. Yeah. So I don't want to get too far ahead because I'm still publishing and trying to publish this work. And But given the to- topic of your work and the show, it's yeah. that's exactly what this is about. So we're going to dive into it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, what I discovered... A number of years ago, 
was that in order to be able to have something called synchronicity, where there's an a-causal connection, there has to be a way for the universe that we live in to be flexible. So if I'm going to make a choice, let, let, let's say Neo's in the Matrix, right? And, right? and he's going through some office building, and he knows that the agents are somewhere in the building, and he goes, he goes left down a hallway. And then he ends up running into the agents and having a battle of some kind. Well, what if he had decided to go right down that hallway? Would he have missed the agents? Just like you asked, if, if I hadn't have gone to the Louvre or, or Dana hadn't have gone to Paris, would I have – would we never have met? Right. Or was there a script, as in The Matrix? You know, <laughs> There's a script that they, he's supposed to have a battle somewhere. Right. Maybe, maybe there are versions of the script that we don't know about, yeah. And if you mix that with his ability to have free will, then you run up against the fact that, well, then the rest of the world, the simulated world out there, must be flexible. Mm-hmm. So if we have to get to the script, but Neo has free will, then the script must be able to be flexible to, to, to Neo's choice and bring the battle somewhere else. And so we find that the whole history of, say, the agents becomes – must be flexible. It must be that because you've, you've never – you don't know what the, where they are ahead of time. It's possible that they ended up going to this part of the building or to this part of the building, and that actual decision is held off until Neo makes his decision. And this is very much aligned with the, the way that we program virtual reality in video games. Optimistic synchronization is a, a method for allowing disparate computers to simulate their own versions of the reality and yet communicate with each other in ways with relevant information. And so it's only at the point where Neo makes his decision that the whole history of the agents falls into place on one path or on another path in order to align up and bring about the battle that's in the script. So I call that retroactive event determination. Okay, now that's that's very interesting because now we're we're kind of bringing in some in- interesting video game concepts and you know I talk a little bit about you know how there is no shared rendered world. There's information being passed back and forth between right. different computers. And when you do an MMORPG like World of Warcraft, is there something like that going on with each of us, where they're we're we're sending information back and forth to some cloud server somewhere? Well, yes. I mean, I say yes in a very abstract way, right? <laughs> right. That, that, yeah, I don't mean a physical cloud server. <laughs> Right. Yeah, and, and I think that the server is actually – I don't even think about it with the server. I think about it direct communication between the two uh, laptops, right? So I've got my virtual reality, which I'll get to as, as being a, a holographic representation of the world, and you've got yours. And it's only when we meet on this phone call and share information back and forth that your the, the, the logistics in your reality line up with the logistics in my reality in a consistent way. But we do find that they're always consistent. So the, the right amount of information is always shared to make sure that we stay consistent with each other and we experience what seems like a seamless reality. But what it really is is a projection for each of us of the world that we are inhabiting. Right. That's interesting. Now, you know, one of the aspects of quantum physics that I always found interesting is the delayed choice experiment. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, this idea that if light is coming from a distant galaxy and it, it can go left or right around a particular star or object, uh, that, 
which way it went might not actually be determined until there's an observer. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And is that tying to this idea of retroactive event determination that you talked about? Yeah, retroactive event determination is the same as that, as Wheeler's delayed choice experiment. Now, a lot of my work is trying to show and argue that these principles apply to macroscopic objects as well. In physics terms, we would say that quantum mechanics is universal. That's not a mainstream uh, accepted idea because it, it, it un unequivocally leads to starting to ask really difficult questions about the nature of reality, like do the agents have an actual history? Are they actually real? <laughs> or is there some way, I mean, if, they, if their history is flexible, then they can't possibly be real because they have an experience of their history of how they ended up in this part of the building. So how could they suddenly be in the other part of the building without like a, a quantum leap to you know suddenly jump across the rooms and have their memory erased and all these all false these memories like right. in <laughs> exactly <laughs> something that I like to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> so when you start thinking about quantum mechanics as universal as applying to everything, it becomes um, much more difficult to understand from our common sense point of view. But the, this is essentially the, the same concept of Wheeler's delayed choice, where uh, an experiment happens. Let's say you have uh, two slits, and these, these are two slits in like a piece of cardboard, or it could be two a photon traveling around uh, a, a black hole, which is acting like a slit because it bends light from either side of the black hole back together. And so you have this meeting point of a coherent source of light from either of those situations. And it turns out that you, you get an interference pattern between the, the two sources of the light, one from the left side of the black hole and one from the, from the right side of the black hole. And when they meet, you get this interference pattern. And it turns out that you you can also measure them a different way and you get a, a definite collapse into a, into a, a, a specific localized state, and not to get too technical here. But the point is that the you can ask the question of when did that choice happen? Right. Did it happen? Because the black hole might have been light years away, right? Right. Right. And you didn't make the decision on how to measure it until it reached Earth. And so the question is, does my decision impact the entire retroactive history of the travel through space? And if so, am I changing the history from, from something to something else? And, and does quantum physics say that that in fact is happening? That it doesn't happen until you make the choice, until you observe it? Yes, and, and to be very clear, it's but it's not that you are changing the history from something that it was to something different, because the history itself is undefined until mm -hmm. the end point. Right. Would we say it's in superposition? Is that the the, the term terminology? I always like to use Schrodinger's cat yeah. <laughs> as an example of superposition. Yeah, it's a superposition. It's two possible states that are both like I was saying earlier, that possibility of the, the stool being there or not being there, but they're not yet determined through any kind of interaction or observation by you on Earth. And both of those possibilities are neither – it's not correct to say it takes both paths or it's uh, particles in two places at once because that implies that there exists a reality in which it's in both places at once. What we're saying is this is prior to anything actually happening, there's these two very real possibilities that are superimposed.
So are they just possibilities or do they actually exist? Now, I know, you know, some physics don't like this <laughs> idea of collapse of the probability wave based on the observer and they prefer the multiverse theory by saying there's two different universes, one where the light went one way and one where it went the other way. I mean, what are your thoughts on that and how does this tie to your holographic multiverse theory? Well, um, Niels Bohr was asked this a similar question. So, you know, the electron, where is it really? And he didn't answer that question the way you'd expect. He said, to be? What does it mean to be? Like the word is, is really the problem here. And the way you asked that question was something like, you know, does it really exist or not? And what we're saying is we have to redefine what we mean by exist. Because in our common usage, exist means something is there physically, measurable. And, what and would you, how would you redefine it then? So if exist doesn't mean it's there physically, what does that mean? <laughs> so it's either there or it's not there or it's got the potential for being there. And all three of those are valid states. And so exist could, you know, the way I use it, it maybe could mean it, there's a real stool in front of me. It exists. Or it could mean there's a potential for a stool that in some sense that is a form of existence. Um, but when you – we limit the possible answers when we sort of talk about existing because we, we forget that there's this new sense in which potential is, is a real thing. And that's essentially what quantum mechanics says is, and what it contributes to the dialogue that we're having is that not only are these, you know, obviously there's a possibility that I'll be late for the train or I'll be on time for the train, but that these possibilities have some sense in which they're very real and physical, although they're not physically manifested until they collapse. Which brings up the other question you asked about the multiverse and how we, you know, if there's no collapse and all the branches of the tree are, are actually happening, it's sort of the same question. Like, what does it mean that they're actually happening? The only thing that you and I know is what we experience. You know, physical reality is the result of us interacting with the physical world. And we only experience one of these branches of possibility at a time. You know, the one that I'm in is the set of experiences that I'm having. And that is the one branch. So to say that another branch of the tree is also physically real, it actually doesn't make any sense because well, then you have to ask questions like, where is it physically real? Is there some other physical space in which is, I'm really doing something different? Right, right. And and is there any way to to show that? I mean, I, th that's why I like to say the only way to really do that would be if all of these states exist as information as opposed to physical. That's exactly physical right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And that's the same perspective I take. And th that's that information um, layer of pre-existence. We can call it pre-existence maybe, you know, the possibility yeah. state. Heisenberg called it potentia. And that layer of pre-existence is, is really just information. But information is more than just ideas information has the potential to manifest into real things and so we have to take it seriously but not think of it as like there's another version of me somewhere leading a better life <laughs> you know um, I, i'm here in my life right now and the question is how do i navigate this tree of all the informational possibilities in order to make decisions and choices that get me to certain experiences that i want to have Right. So, what's your thought on on physicists like uh, like Sean Carroll? You know, he, he had a book out recently where he argues that the multiverse theory is more likely because it doesn't rely on consciousness or collapses of the probability wave. Um, 
Well, th- these questions are all very deep. Uh, <laughs> Sean right. Carroll, you know, I want to also bring up David Kaiser, who's the guy who wrote How the Hippies Save Physics. Right. These are these are physicists who are doing great work, and they're really at the at the cutting edge of asking these questions and doing experimental work. And I think as scientists, we all come at our science with a different philosophy. And it's impossible to avoid philosophy because we have a philosophy. We are individuals who have a philosophical stance on the world. And our interpretation of science is we're not robots. Like we are making assumptions in order to function in the world. And those assumptions influence the way we understand the, the, the physics results that we get. So um, I think, you know, I think we need to all have a lot of respect for the different ways in which we can interpret the, the data. All this just to say that I think Sean Carroll does great work, and he's he he's pretty solidly on the I think on the end of materialism from what I remember. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like he's very much in the materialist camp, <laughs> right? And I basically see him as the person that I want to convince of the work that I'm doing. You know, ideally, <laughs> because uh, I think that we can show experimentally that there's more nuance than just a traditional materialist perspective but that doesn't mean that materialism doesn't make any sense you know so these questions are so nuanced and we what we need is a is a theory that uh connects the dots between these two ways of looking at things and doesn't exclude the materialist perspective and doesn't exclude the idealist perspective or the sense that the perspective in which there is what i call a responsiveness to the universe it doesn't mean that you know there's a god that's trying to help us but it means that there's a responsiveness to it that in which case meaning and choice become actually relevant questions for physics. Yeah, I mean, I think the hard part there will be convincing other scientists that meaning is something that can be objectively defined. Right. And and the way I, I've tried to do it is, again, through – I mean, meaning is essentially the same thing as information. It's about it's, – it's, it's the opposite of entropy. The more information we have, the more the, – the less entropy uh, – change there is in a system. At least I I think that's the right way to say it. It's it's very subtle. Um, But if you look at the branching of a tree and you look at how many branches of that tree have a certain type of outcome and how many don't have that type of outcome, you can start to quantify the meaningfulness of the choice you make. If I go left and go to Paris, uh, there's a lot of branches of that tree where there's apples in which I meet Dana by accident. That's a very meaningful – but then if I don't go to Paris and I just take a plane home from where I was, like Rome, which is where I got sick, right. and then I don't have all those apples. And so if you look at one branch of the tree that has you know, 10 apples and the other branch of the tree that has one apple, you say, oh, there's this measurable objective difference in the way that the future can turn out. And so relative to this question of whether she and I meet, I can calculate the entropy of that distribution you know, the 10 versus one and say that it's a very meaningful choice point. It doesn't say it's a good choice for me to go to Paris. It just says it's a very meaningful decision because one branch leads to a whole bunch of times where I can meet with Dana. The other branch leads to very few times where I can meet with Dana. Right. So, so meaning then would be defined as a particular experience that you're having there or, or the likelihood of that experience. I mean, how are you? Yeah, defining, it, uh, it's the way, way it's the way that the branches of the tree divide amongst a particular experience. So I def- define the experience I want to I, I anticipate through a choice that I make, through some action that I make. And then the branches of the tree sort of divide up where, where that experience happens. 
and uh, certain choices then become much more meaningful with regard to that particular choice or target. Right. So then meaningful is almost a measurement in a way, right, <laughs> of, the, of the branches of the tree in that case. Yes, yes. And, it's, and again, it's not saying that one, brand, one, one direction is better. It's just saying that this is a meaningful point, right? Because like let's say – let's take a simple example of I, I'm looking to get a new job and I decide whether or not I'm going to submit a, a resume to this company. That's a meaningful decision. If I submit the resume to the company, there's a possibility – there's apples on that branch where I, I am offered an interview. If I don't submit the resume, I, there's no chance I'll get an interview or very little So because they won't even know about me. So that's just a meaningful choice because one branch of the tree leads to a certain set of outcomes and the other branch doesn't. But it's meaningful with respect to the question or the intention I have of trying to get employment. Right. Makes sense. Cool. Well, so, sure. so I'm, just, I'm defining you know, the path and then seeing how the choices are meaningful or not with regards to that path. With regards to that path. That makes sense. Well, shifting back to this idea of the holographic multiverse theory, as you know, I'm a big proponent of the simulation hypothesis. Yeah, great book, so, by the way. I loved it. Thank you. Yeah. And so what are the connections or differences between sort of the holographic multiverse theory that you're working on and uh, various versions of the simulation hypothesis, I guess? Well, I fell into this study because the, the research I was doing on holograms and on space and time and on trying to understand the the best possible what I call fixing or or yeah fixing of the, of quantum mechanics because quantum mechanics has some assumptions and that we've that have been built in from the foundation that are still uh, difficult for us to figure out. Um, in in trying to do work in that regard, I came to this connection that brought together all these threads from my life around my interest in holograms, my interest in Fourier transforms, and information theory, and began to see that oh yeah the model really is that that the physical world described by quantum mechanics has the same mathematics as a hologram. And and what what is the, what are the mathematics of a hologram? Like how does that, I mean not getting into too much detail but just at a high level. Yeah, a hologram is a piece of film that you look at it and you see a three-dimensional looking image in it. Like you could have it on your credit card, it might be like an eagle or something like that. Or you could see it in a museum and there's this image that pops out at you. Like a face for instance, you might walk around it and you see the face from all different perspectives. So the, the hologram is not like a photograph. In a photograph, the image is like glued to the surface of the film. In a hologram, it jumps above the film or behind it, and you see this three-dimensional view. And what's important about a hologram is it actually captures the waveform, the interference pattern itself, not the image that you see. And so, it, and, and so all the information about the entire face or the entire image is present in, everywhere in that film pattern. And when you move around it, you choose a perspective, which selects out a particular vantage point of that information, and then it reproduces for you the, the face from that perspective. Right, but isn't to a certain extent the, the 3D object is an illusion because it's really a 2D representation that gets projected through light, right? Is that kind of how Yeah, it's but it's an illusion in the sense that it, it creates the exact light pattern you would see if the object was really there. Right. So, so in some sense, it's much more real than a photograph, which is just creating a bitmap of color tones. A hologram is creating the actual interference pattern present in the world and then shining light through it. So it takes on that interference pattern, and and then there really is this, Im this image right there in front of you. 
Right. That, that's really interesting because, you know, in my, in my book, I talk about the light field displays and how we're making progress on being able to project light as if this cup was really there. Yeah. You know, well, and then what's the difference between an actual cup being there and not being uh-huh. there if, if, in fact, it looks to us and eventually if it feels to us like right. it's there. Right. And what's interesting about the, the hologram is that, you know, when you when you move across the film, your, your vantage point, the, the nose and the ears all kind of move relative to each other in the face that you're looking at. And they move relative to each other because they're not actually stuck to the film. The, the film as a whole contains the information as a whole about the entire face as a whole. And so depending on how you look, it can re- reconstruct it from any perspective. And this is important if you then think about applying this to space and time. You know, a hologram is just a hologram in space. But if you actually apply this to time as well, you're saying that time as a whole is defined by this hologram. And what that so, means – No, that's interesting. Yeah, explain that a little more. A holograph, hologram in time. Well, yeah, so – we take for granted that we're in the present moment. We're sitting here right now having this experience right here, and we're always in the present moment. And that's one of the big mysteries of physics right now is that we're stuck in the present moment. And it's very different from space where we can move left and right, we can go forward and backwards. But in time, we just move steadily forward. And instead of that concept of being stuck in, in the present, that's actually not um, supported by physics. There is no actual present moment in physics. What physics describes is a timeline, at least the, the way that I interpret both the holographic work and, and, and other work that's been done. The, we exist not only in the present moment, but on timelines. And this comes back to the tree model, where you have like a tree of film strips. And each film strip is a whole timeline for how your life could go or how an experiment could play out in, in a lab, for instance. And so there's this way in which we are connected both to the past and the future on this predefined timeline. And that's very different from just being stuck in the present moment and making decisions right here and now. And that's possible because of this holographic nature of of time. Right. So would that mean, just as you mentioned earlier, that any piece of the hologram has information about the whole hologram, that any piece, point in time, has information about the whole timeline to date? Yeah, or? yeah. And, and this is essentially why it, it seems possible to me that we can make a choice in the moment with some anticipated experience and connect to the branches of the tree that are out there in the future, above us, say, and sort of interact with them in a sense of, of making them either have apples or not have apples, depending on whether they align with the experience I'm seeking. It's not that we're reaching into the future, but that everything is present together in this holographic way. Right, and would that also apply to the past then? Would this kind of explain retroactive event determination where uh, you know, you're connecting to that film strip, which might be different from the film strip where the photon went around the other side of the black hole, let's say. Right, that's exactly right. And it doesn't mean that we get to revise history. The, the element of consistency is crucial here. If, if I've already measured something and I've got information about it, I can't undo that information. So we're not changing the past from what it was, but anything that we haven't observed is still essentially part of our future, right? Even if it happened, even if its source was in the past. And so it's still flexible to... Okay, now explain that a little more. <laughs> well, let, let's say I'm going to the store and I end up bumping into my friend 
and we have a meaningful conversation. And I call that a synchronicity, which and there's different definitions of you know how meaningful that is. I, I'm not really that interested in in slicing hairs about whether it's a synchronicity because I met my friend or it's just random chance. Like we could have that conversation too. But let's say I, I meet them by accident and we have a meaningful conversation. Well, three minutes before I met them, I didn't know I was going to meet them. And I had a choice to go left down this aisle or right down that other aisle. And they have obviously a history of choices that they've made in the past 10 or 15 minutes to get to the store as well, right? Is that set of choices that they made, is that real? Is that already fixed? It's in the past, right? It happened at the same time I was going to the store. They, had, they must have been going to the store as well, even though we didn't know about each other. But my meeting them is actually in my future, my my knowing that they're at the store is in my future, and so it's still open to retroactive determination how that actually unfolds. Right, similar to your going to Paris, right? Your your meeting right. your future wife there was in the future, right? And her decision to go there was in the was past. It, was in the past, but you didn't right. know about it, right? Exactly, and that captures the whole picture, right? There's this relational approach, which in which, like the video games, I have my world and you have your world, and they're they're each rendered for us specifically. And then there's a consistency where we're, every time we interact, we share information and that information is always, always consistent with everything else, all the other information we have. And so it creates this seamless milieu in which I end up meeting my friend at the store and it appears that they must have been driving there the whole time, the last 15 minutes and walking to that place in the store. But really that whole history fell into place in order to match the choices that I made so that we could have that script. So what happens to the other film strips in in that scenario? It's a great question. <laughs> I guess we're, we're touching on very big questions. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And so we're not going to answer them. <laughs> but they're not physically real. We already established that. I think we both agreed on that. They're information. So we don't have to think about what happens to them, like do they get dragged to the trash can or something, <laughs> you know? Um, I think it's sort of a... It's sort of the wrong question, ultimately. It leads us down a, a rabbit hole of trying to make sense of this massively sort of infinite branching tree of possibilities um, from a, treating those possibilities as like real physical things because we're used to the real physical world. Right. And and it's really hard to say what is the physical world, right? <laughs> when you yeah. really get down to it. I mean, I always use the example of, you know, we, th we thought there were atoms and we found there are like 90% <laughs> space. Then we thought there's the protons and the neutrons, but they consist of these smaller particles. And when you keep opening up the Russian dolls, what's actually right. there? Right. Every one of these things is a model that we have. And and this comes back to the question about how do different people do their work in physics. We're always working within models. None of us has an access to a, a true description of the world. And it's questionable about whether that's even possible. Mm. And so how we interpret the models and, and what kind of conclusions we make is going to depend on other aspects of who we are as people and the context of our civilization. You know, people in, in China are going to come up with different theories based on the same physical reality than we are simply due to the different context of the society and that's just natural well that's interesting so do do chinese physicists have a different interpretation of quantum mechanics or, or may they in the future you think 
Um, I don't know enough to say, and maybe that was a jumping ahead of myself on that example. But <laughs> it's I an think, interesting point, though. Yeah, you know? <laughs> there's definitely a different culture uh, in, in, I think, a very healthy way between the American culture, United States culture, and Chinese culture. And I imagine that that does influence the way that we mutually interpret the work we're doing. Right. But I don't have any examples. But I'd be interested in learning because it sounds like a very interesting uh, – and useful and, and relevant thing to know about the way that we, we create theories. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely true in, in, in the medical world where, you know, there are different models in different cultures for how how we get healthy and how we get sick. And, and so, you know, you have in various parts of the world, whether it's Ayurvedic medicine, homeopathic, acupuncture, uh, you know, you have medical doctors trained in India and China who might also believe more in these other methods, but doctors trained in the U.S. might not. So, you know, I think anytime people are involved uh, in, yeah. in the interpretation, that, that that goes different ways. Well, let me ask you, what are the consequences if we're living in a holographic world for us? Like, what does this mean? And we're running to the end of our time here. So let's make that the last question. Yeah, I, I think it really comes down to choice. If we're living in a materialist world, then the choices we make right in the moment uh, are influencing just the moment. But if we live in a holographic world, then we're actually – Every choice we make and every action we take from that choice sets a target on the end of this timeline that essentially then fills in the path for us. And so we start to think about choices differently. We make our choices, and then we look around us for what kind of helpful information, what kind of helpful situations are showing up to fill in the path to get there. And so we start taking on things maybe that are much more difficult or challenging because we don't know how to get there, but we know how to follow a process of discovery. And I think that's possible within the holographic universe in a way that it's not possible in just a materialist view. Great. That's a great way to wrap it up. Uh, so the book is Living in Flow. Uh, how can people get a hold of you? What's your website? And I know you're teaching a course on there as well now, right? Yeah, I've got a course called the Living in Flow course, which goes into different ways to see and experience more synchronicity around you and to make use of the situations that show up in your life accidentally by understanding yourself better and being able to um, keep on your path even if you don't know what the end result is. So there's a lot of exercises I, I've developed to help that to help uh, do that and, and make make sense of and, and optimize your experience in that way. And that's called the Living and Flow course. And it's all found on my website, skynelson.com. You can find my book there as well. And I have a new book I'm working on and a paper uh, Papers coming out in, in different writings that I that I put up there as well. That's all. Some of that's available for free just from my website. So check me out there, and I'd love to stay in touch with anybody who wants to. That's great. I highly recommend Sky's book and some of his papers that really delve into more detail on all the stuff we've been talking about. And we'd love to have you back on, you know, as you uh, write and publish more about this holographic multiverse theory. Thanks, Riz. I really appreciate being on the show. Yep. Great having you on.